So good morning. We are, we are in the month of June. It's June 7th. And so welcome everyone that's here and, and those that are, are watching. Um, just at, at the outset, I just want to, um, I guess, make, make a plea for, for you, to you on my behalf. Um, I know that many of you do pray for me and I'm, I'm thankful for that, but I'm just making an explicit plea now for you to pray for me. Um, this is, we're all going through this together, but, but I find myself often as a um, pastor not knowing how to lead through all that's going on. I mean, the, the pandemic was one thing, and now we have the, this cultural um, moment that we're in, and so, so just please pray. In fact, one pastor said, uh, he described it well. He said, we're all, talking about pastors, we're all trying to delicately navigate discussions on race, racial tension, COVID-19, COVID-19 reopening plans, in addition to our own fear and anxiety. We are weak, stressed, and tired, but grateful for the opportunity to serve. And so that, that, is, that, that is true for me. Um, I am weak, stressed, tired, but thankful for this opportunity. Um, and so I, I just want to ask you to, to pray. Pray for me, pray for my many brothers across the state and the nation that, that are trying to lead through this. Um, and actually in our, our Bible reading plan this past week, if you're doing it at, that, as a church, um, providentially we came across, it, we're in 1 Kings, and at the beginning of 1 Kings, there's uh, 1 Kings chapter three where there's that great interaction with Solomon. And Solomon, it's, it's 1 Kings three, chap, chapter three, verse nine, and, and the Lord says, what, what, what should I give you? And Solomon says, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern your great people. And so that's my prayer, <laughs> that, that I may have wisdom to govern um, the Lord's great people. So here at Fox Road Baptist Church, we are a great people. We are the Lord's people and um, I need wisdom to govern and lead. Um, so, so pray for me. Again, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said last week. My prayer for us, for the church, is, is Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, um, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And so maybe, maybe you could um, take that on as, as a weekly prayer, a daily prayer. Um, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. So, so that's what I'm um, praying right now. And, and I would just ask and, and encourage you, um, take your fears, take your frustrations, take your anger, take your helplessness. So maybe, maybe at points you felt helpless, what, what can I do? Um, all of these emotions, take them all. Um, wherever you are on this, this spectrum of emotions, take these things to the Lord. Um, he's with you, he's able to care for you. Um, he's able to minister comfort um, and he's, a, he's able to um, sustain us all through this. So let's make sure um, to do that. And then lastly, I'll just say, let's make sure that our thinking and our talking and our interactions and our comments um, as Christians in, in a society, um, let's make sure that our comments are first and foremost rooted in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, my hope for myself, um, but, but for all of my brothers and sisters, all of the Christians, is that our allegiance to Christ would be unquestioned during these times. Um, uh, one of the ways that happens is by, by gracious speech. No matter what's going on, we, we are to be marked by our allegiance to Christ. Um, I think of Ephesians 4, uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who are here. And so I wanna, I wanna be a, a speaker of grace words. I want people that, that read what I say, that hear what I say. I want them to, to receive grace from it. And so that's my prayer for all of us um, as we go. Um, and so as we, as we move to the sermon, uh, today's sermon is, is timely. 
Um, I don't think it's coincidence. And, and so at the end, I'll ask two questions in, in terms of application. And I'm gonna just throw them out here at the beginning because it, it fits in what we've just been talking about. Um, and so two questions that, that we're gonna be asking throughout the sermon. Um, and so I'm just gonna tell you now two questions that, that you can be thinking on today and then this week. The first question is, am I growing in Christ-likeness? It's just a question to consider. Am I growing in Christ-likeness? We're gonna see that the, the purpose of our salvation, the goal that every Christian is striving for as a Christian is Christ-likeness. Um, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit specifically has been given to us for that purpose. And so the question I want us to be asking ourselves, especially in light of the, the combative, tension-filled season that we're in is, am I growing in Christ-likeness? And I mean that seriously. Ask yourself in your conversations with others, whether family members or, or kids or neighbors or coworkers or, or on whatever social media platform you're on, are you, are you Christ-like in your interactions, in your relationships? What about uh, asking, are you Christ-like in what you post on Instagram or Facebook or email or text? Would those who follow you um, recognize that you are a Christ follower? That's a question. And again, I'm asking myself, uh, are, are you using platforms to, to be an example? Or has social media become a place to vent your frustrations? Um, or to criticize this person or that person? Is your identity, is my identity as a Christian, as a little Christ, as a Christ follower, what drives our use of social media? Um, or in my case, something I'm asking very specifically is does my browsing of social media help me or encourage me in my pursuit of Christ-likeness? Or does it hinder it? Because if it's not helping me grow in my pursuit of Christ, in, in my conformity into his image, if it's not helping, even if it means being out of touch with what's going on, even if it means losing contact with some, some distant friends, if, if my holiness is at stake, if my, if my growing in Christ-likeness is at stake, it's not worth it. And so I must stop justifying or trying to justify and we must ask ourselves, is this helping me? Because we wanna fill our lives with things that are encouraging our growth in Christ-likeness. And, and so if, if we find things that aren't, um, we ought to stop it. We ought to cut off our right hand or pluck out our eye as Jesus encouraged us when sin is at stake. And so we're gonna see the spirit has been given to transform us, to conform us into the image of Christ. Um, and that process was difficult long before social media and, and what's going on in, in 2020. And the process has always been slow and, and our terrain is always uphill, but we still have hope. Um, and so we, we ought to do all we can do to, to pursue those things intentionally. And then the second question to be asking um, is, is how is the doctrine of creation uh, and I mean that specifically referring to, to the idea that all men and women, boys and girls, all people are created in God's image. So when I say doctrine of creation, I mean specifically that all people are created in God's image. How is that doctrine shaping how I'm thinking about current cultural issues? And so we ought, we ought to, we're gonna see in the sermon, uh, the, the fact that every other human being on this planet bears the image of God requires, demands that I interact with them with a certain sense of, of, of respect and I grant them dignity that, that is owed merely by the fact that they are image bearers. And so, so to ask it from, from a negative perspective, are, are there ways that I'm demeaning my fellow image bearers? And so I would ask that, I would, I would ask that racially, are there ways that I'm, I'm demeaning those of a different race? Are there ways that I'm demeaning those of a, a different political bent? Are there ways that I'm demeaning those of another economic bent? 
well, we all have categories or groupings that, that we fit in, right? We, I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. We, we all fit in, in racial or political or economic uh, categories. They, the, those, those groups and categories exist. I'm not saying they don't, but what I am saying is that the way I treat those in other categories, those not like me, whether it's race or politics or economics, whatever it is, as a Christian, those who disagree with me, the, those that I disagree with, must first and foremost be treated with respect and dignity and love. And it doesn't matter how they treat me. It's not, well, well I'm gonna treat you the way, the way that you treat me. No, it's I, I'm gonna treat you the way I wanna be treated. I'm gonna treat you the, the way that, that I'm called as a Christian to treat you. I'm called to love you, to respect you, to, to give you dignity that you deserve. And so as Christians, I, I just, and, and again, this is, all, this is as much for me as for, for you, but as Christians, our view of the world must be different than the world's view of the world. It has to be. That's what makes us Christians. We, we have a Christian view of the world. And, and if we find ourselves viewing the world the way that the world views the world, we, we're missing something. And so those are the two questions, questions for, for our time, our current situation, but also questions for our sermon that we'll come back to at the very end. Am I growing in Christ-likeness? And am I treating my fellow image bearers the way um, that they deserve to be treated? So that, that's kind of a preview. Um, uh, that, that's our introduction, um, our welcome this morning. So, so as we continue before we pray, I'm gonna read from Exodus chapter three. Um, so Exodus chapter three, this is a well-known uh, occurrence in the life of Moses at the outset of, of his ministry. I mean, so you can follow along or you can listen. I'm gonna read the first 15 verses of Exodus chapter three, and then I'm gonna pray for us before we uh, get into the sermon. So, so here, um, the words of Exodus chapter three, beginning in verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him, called him out of the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, take, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, well, what is his name? What, what am I supposed to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We'll we'll stop there and, and, and let's pray together. Lord, we, we confess in light of, of this, this occurrence in, in the beginning of Exodus, we confess that, that you are holy, that we like Moses ought to be afraid to behold your face. You are a consuming fire. And Father, we confess that without your provision, without your invitation, we could not draw near to you in the form of a bush or even now in the form of prayer. And so we confess that, but, but you, Lord, because of your great love for us, because of your steadfast love, never ceasing love, you have invited us near. In fact, more than that, you, you have done what it takes to bring us near. And so this morning, we are alive in your presence. We're not afraid, but we are beholding your glory with unveiled faces. And so we rejoice this morning that that is our lot now because of Christ. And so we give you thanks and we worship you and Father, we, we acknowledge that you are the God of our salvation. You have delivered us. You have made us your very people, the people of your own possession. And as your people, we long to honor you and to obey you. We long to represent you well in this broken and fallen world. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you'd forgive us for failing to do so. Lord, we, we long to see others in this world come to know you through Christ. We long to see others come to put their faith in the crucified and resurrected and ascended Christ. And so forgive us. We ask for not prioritizing evangelism and not for speaking up when we've had opportunities. Lord, you are the God who sees the affliction of your people. You're the God who hears the cries of your people. You're the God who knows the suffering of your people. You're not unacquainted with grief and sorrow and suffering. And so I pray, Lord, that your people would fight find great comfort in you right now. We recognize that the sufferings of your people are diverse. We're a a diverse body, but, but we all experience suffering. And so I pray that you would draw near to your people in the midst of their suffering. And Father, I pray this as generally and as comprehensively as possible, that you would comfort your people. Would you be near to the brokenhearted now? Father, we, we pray, continue to pray for our leaders. Would you grant wisdom to the men that you have placed over us for Mayor Tuck, for Governor Northam, for Senator Kane and Senator Warner and for President Trump, for all of these men that you've, you've put in places of authority. We ask you would grant them wisdom. Lord, more than that, this morning I ask for wisdom on behalf of myself and every other pastor who finds himself navigating this uncharted territory. I ask with Solomon, who is able to govern your people, who is able to lead Father, the answer is that none of us are apart from you. And so I ask that you would grant supernatural wisdom to to pastors all over this nation, all over this world. We pray for brothers leading churches in in other countries who who live in a state of uncharted territory. We pray you would sustain them and grant them wisdom. I pray for encouragement and hope and perseverance. Lord, for, for the specific needs of our church family, we pray this morning for Maria Palmer. We pray that... Uh, You would help her continue to to recover from her infection. We pray that um, she might be guarded from further complications, give her comfort uh, and peace. Lord, we pray for Frances Hartman this morning, as even now she's she's, um, in in Centera in an ICU unit um, in light of her stroke last night. We thank you that that Cindy and others were able to, to get her to the hospital soon. 
Um, and so we pray for, for Frances. We pray that you would give her relief and comfort. Thank you that uh, she suffers now with great hope. Um, so we pray for Francis. We pray for our older church members who are struggling now, especially with loneliness or boredom. Um, those who long to be in the presence of, of other Christians, I pray you'd sustain them. Lord, I pray that soon that, that, that we would all be able to meet together again without fear. Lord, I pray for our widows, those who have lost spouses who, who now are navigating with, without their companions. Lord, I pray for the parents who have young children in, in the midst of, of this extended at home time. We pray for our singles. Lord, we pray for the children of our church. Um, all, of, all of these, Lord, you care for and you are um, invested in. And so we pray, we pray that you would uh, intervene in, in these situations. Um, Lord, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing our Holy Spirit series, and so this is the, the seventh week, um, and, and we're going to uh, pick up on the same theme as last week, and so it's gonna be the, the work of the Spirit in transforming God's people. I mean, so last week, we, we looked at the, the work of the Spirit transforming God's people, focusing specifically on 2 Corinthians 3. Um, so it was a whole passage there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but we focused specifically on verse 18 and the, the new covenant work of the Spirit, specifically as it relates to the mediation of God's glory. Okay, whereas, Mo, whereas Paul makes this, this whole argument in 2 Corinthians 3, that under the old covenant, God's glory was veiled, Moses' face was veiled, but now in the new covenant, Paul is confident he can boldly proclaim and preach the gospel because this, the Spirit's ministry in the new covenant enables us to behold the glory of the Lord, to, to be in his presence without fear. And so God's glory dwells fully and completely among his new covenant people now uniquely. And so Paul could, as a, as a minister of the gospel, he could boldly proclaim the gospel to uh, the Corinthians. And so we saw that last week. And so the, the new covenant, in the new covenant, the spirit mediates God's presence freely. So I, let me just read 2 Corinthians 3, the two verses we looked at, where, where Paul writes in verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord, there's freedom, meaning freedom from the veil, no need for a veil. Verse 18, and we all, that is new covenant believers, Paul writes himself as an apostle included, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so after last week, we spent all of the, the week, all the message on, on that passage, specifically on, on those verses. This week, the stage is set. We're gonna focus specifically on the process that Paul assumes there in verse 18. So in eight, verse 18, he says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are, the, here's the phrase, being transformed. We all with unveiled faces are, are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. And so we're gonna look at the process of this transformation, okay? And, and specifically, this transformation is, is also known as sanctification, okay? And so we're gonna look at the work of the Spirit in sanctifying his people, okay? And, and the Holy Spirit, as you remember, the Holy Spirit is the primary agent in the work of sanctification. Uh, at this point, Lord willing, next week we're gonna, we're gonna be part three in the work of the Spirit and transforming God's people because I, there's more I need to say that I'm not gonna say this morning. Um, but this, this week I want us to focus specifically on sanctification. And so the new, two main points, there's only two points um, this morning, and that is first we'll look at sanctification as a process. So we'll see that sanctification is a process. That's the first thing, I think one of the most important things to be said about sanctification. And then second, we'll see sanctification as a non-negotiable. 
as necessary, as essential, as a, a part of the life of the Christian without exception. Okay, so those are the two points. Sanctification is, is a process and then sanctification is non-negotiable. And so first let's look at sanctification as a process. Okay, so as we look at this, I want to, you to recognize that this transformation is, is the purpose of your and my salvation. This transformation, this, this pursuit of sanctification, this process of sanctification is the result of being born again. Okay, we looked at regeneration several weeks ago. We are born again for the purpose of growing in our holiness and for the purpose of becoming sanctified. In the same way that once a child is born, typically there is a a normal progression, a transformation. This is the same. The Spirit gives us new life, but he doesn't leave us there. He then transforms us gradually and conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. And so the phrase that I want us to, to, to if you're not familiar with, I want you to be aware of and, and, and know, know, come to know is, is the phrase progressive sanctification, okay? So, so this idea, what, what I'm gonna be saying, what, what, what summarizes the, 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 this first point that sanctification is a process is the phrase progressive sanctification. And so if you're a believer, you're in the middle of the process of progressive sanctification, and so the goal of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life is to transform you and me into the image of Christ, to make us like Christ. You could put it this way. The Holy Spirit has been given to you in order to sanctify you, to make you holy. And so when you talk about sanctification, we're talking about becoming more like Jesus. Christiformity is, is what it was sometimes known as historically. So if you read some of the older Christians from, from, from ages past, they talk about Christiformity. That's simply being conformed into the image of Christ. We, we use the term Christ-likeness. Okay, so, so we're on this process now, that's what second or that's what Second Corinthians three talks about, where this transformation from one degree of glory to the other, right? We're being transformed by the Spirit, and it's this process, one degree to another. So when you become a Christian, you are not made practically holy to to its fullest extent. Yeah, Amen. I'm not as holy as I ought to be. It doesn't happen. So so maybe you you became a Christian. Maybe you've told someone, Hey, if you follow Jesus, He's going to make everything better. Maybe you hear that on TV. That doesn't happen. It does, it's not a flitch that switch that's flipped, that, that every problem that you once had, that every addiction you once had, that every struggle you once had is automatically eliminated. That doesn't happen. We, we, are, we are progressively transformed from one degree to another. And sometimes the Lord used circumstances to, to conform us, to transform us. And so it's a process. And so, and so when, I, when I talk about sanctification, I'm talking about this idea of progressive sanctification. Now, now we're not gonna go into this here, but, but just so you know that sometimes when sanctification is mentioned in the New Testament, it's referring to, to an idea of a definitive sanctification or a positional sanctification. Okay, so, so that, that's a, a once for all act, a definitive act. So we've been sanctified. Okay, so sometimes the New Testament talks about that. So for instance, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about, he doesn't say, well, those in Corinth, they're completely they're as holy as they ought to be practically. No, he's talking about they have been set apart. For, they are devoted to God, right? So that, that's the definitive sanctification. Or later in 1 Corinthians, Paul writing again to the Christian says, and such were some of you. So he talks about all these, all these um, characteristics of, of, a fall, of a sinful person. He says, as such were some, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so this, again, this idea of this, this separation, you were sanctified, it was an, a past act. And so in these cases and others, the idea of sanctification is decisive, a once for all definitive act. 
One, one, one author, one theologian explains that definitive sanctification refers to the gracious move of God to set a people and a person apart for himself. So sanctification in terms of devoted for God. And so there were, there were, there were tools in the temple that were to be sanctified. They were to be set apart. So they were for a specific purpose. And so Paul, or in other authors in the New Testament, when they talk about definitive sanctification, it simply means you've been set apart. It's happened. It's, it's happened once for all. And that happens at conversion. And this idea, definitive sanctification, is the most common in the New Testament. So it's sometimes it's referred to as positional sanctification or definitive sanctification. Okay, so, so that, that's, that's one aspect of sanctification. If you're interested in, in learning more about that, if, if you've got a, uh, an itch to read now, two, two books on this topic specifically are, are one called Possessed by God by a guy named David Peterson. Another one is called Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. And both of those focus on, on the definitive act of sanctification. However, that isn't the sense that we're talking about here today in terms of the transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so, so when I talk about sanctification, I'm talking about this progressive process. And so one theologian, listen to the definition he gives of, of sanctification uh, in this sense. Sanctification is the process, quote, by which the believer is gradually transformed in heart, mind, will, and conduct, and conformed more and more to the will of God and to the image of Christ. Okay, the process by which the believer is gradually transformed in heart, mind, will, and conduct. You know, the, the holistic process, all, all aspects, of our whole person is transformed Gradually, and he conformed more and more to the will of God and to the image of Christ. Okay, so, so that, that's, that's the definition. That's what I'm talking about. Another author, the process by which God works to make his children holy in character. That's a more simple definition. So that's what we're talking about here with sanctification. And this process, this, this transformation is what every Christian is in the middle of. Right, so every Christian is being sanctified in this sense progressively. And so if you're a Christian, you look ahead of you, you have farther to go. But you can look behind you and see, I'm not where I used to be. Right, this ought to be the, this, the, the location of every Christian on this road. In terms of illustration, I thought about this. Think about Interstate 64 as an illustration of the Christian life. And so, so Interstate 64, it runs all the way from, from Norfolk in the east as far as I could tell on Google Maps, to St. Louis in the Midwest. Now that's a long interstate. It's a long road. So envision that as a picture or an image of the Christian life. Now depending on, on whether you prefer the Midwest or the East Coast, you, you can decide what, what, what the end point is. But my point is that we're all on the same road. Either we're going towards the Midwest and that's heaven or the East Coast, which as a Virginian, that's where we're headed. Right? But, so we're all on the same road going towards the end point. We're on the same road, though we're not all at the same point on the road. And so, so maybe you're at a different milepost than, than your, your spouse or than your neighbor, but you're still on the same road. You're still in this same process. We're going the same direction toward the same end point. We're not all going the same speed limit. In fact, some of you are, are going way slower than you used to go. Or maybe, maybe you're fluctuating and in some seasons, some years you're thinking, wow, I'm, I'm flying. And then some you think, what, what's wrong with this car? Why won't it go faster? The point is that we're all on the same road going the same direction toward the same end point. Some of us have older, more worn down cars than others, right? Some are closer to the final destination than others. 
The point isn't the difference, the point is that we're all going the same direction and we are all being moved along, propelled forward, making progress because of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this work is present in every single Christian. So, so I, I want you to walk away knowing that, that sanctification is a mark of regeneration. If you are born again, if you're a Christian, you are in process. It also means that to be a Christian, to be truly born again, means that it's impossible to show no signs of growth. It's impossible to show no evidence of sanctification, or at least to have no desire to obey Christ. It's impossible for the Christian, in the Christian, for there to be no desire to stop sinning or to fight sin. Right? If you're born again, if you have the Spirit, you are going to desire growth in this way because that is what the Spirit does. Christians have the Spirit and Christians grow in Christ-likeness and the Holy Spirit is the primary agent in the transformation process of God's people. He is at work transforming every single believer. If you don't see it, if you don't feel it, trust that the Spirit has been given to you for that explicit purpose. And he's at work to make you more and more like Christ. Which leads us, secondly, not only is it a process, but secondly, it is a non-negotiable. And so we see this, this sanctification is non-negotiable. Now when I say that, I mean that for every Christian, every single person who's repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ, for every new covenant believer who's received the Holy Spirit, sanctification is a non-negotiable. It must be present. In fact, as we've seen, this process is one of the primary purposes that we have received the Spirit. We've received him for this purpose. To have the Spirit is to be in process of sanctification. So one of the primary reasons we have the Spirit is not for supernatural gifts, not for, for anything that, that we do, but who we become. And it takes the third person of the Trinity, Trinity to accomplish that. We can't do it ourselves. We need the Spirit and thankfully, because of the work of Christ, we have received, all of us, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so, so the category of an unsanctified Christian is an oxymoron, it doesn't work. And so as we think about sanctification as non-negotiable, I wanna give you two, two reasons why it is non-negotiable. First, it's non-negotiable because of creation, or because of the created order. Okay, so, so first let's look at it. it's, it's non-negotiable because of creation. And so placing sanctification within the larger context or, or the bigger picture of the Bible helps us to see the significance and the necessity of sanctification. And so in this sense, think of sanctification as an act of, of restoration, of restoring something. What I mean is think about this. Think about salvation and the ensuing sanctification as a return to Eden, as a return to Eden, consider that in saving us, God has instituted the very means by which we're able to dwell with him in his presence as his people, in his place. Now, that's what Eden was. God's rule over God's people in God's place. That was Eden, that was, that was perfection. Salvation, God accomplished salvation so that that might happen again, that we might be his people under his perfect rule, in his perfect place. And so we are saved to be restored to Eden, to the new heavens and the new earth, the new garden city, as the book of Revelation would describe it. 
And so this is where sanctification falls in. We are being conformed into the image of Christ so that we can forever physically dwell with the Lord. It is, an, it is necessary for us. I mean, think about the creation account, Genesis one and two. God creates the first man and woman in his own image, right? He created them, male and female, in his own image, okay? Men aren't more image bearers than women, right? All men, all women bear the image of God because that's how God created him and her, the first man and first woman. Adam and Eve were image bearers, which meant, among other things, that they were his representatives, those that he set over his creation, those with authority to rule in his place. We, he, he gave the first man and woman dominion over created order. They are the climax and they are the ones who are to rule and exercise dominion over his creation. That first man and first woman were his vice regents. It's sometimes said, and I think this is a helpful way to think about the, the first man and first woman as image bearers, but if you think about in, in, in ancient times when there was a mighty king who ruled over this, this expansive or a massive kingdom, right, there's no way for him to be in every place or every country or every territory in that kingdom. Though he ruled over every place and every territory, what he would do is he'd set up images of himself, a statue that says, this is where I rule. So, so people in this, in this city, so that you know, though I'm, I'm living in the capital city far away, you ought to remember that my authority extends to here. And here's my image to remind you that I rule here. He was still the ruler. The statues would, would bear his image. And in a similar way, the establishment of Adam and Eve created to rule over God's creation as his image bears was intended to show the watching world that God was a good God and a gracious provider who had, who had given rule to his image bears. This, this is creation. Sinclair Ferguson writes, as the image of God, man was created to reflect, express, and participate in the glory of God in, in miniature creaturely form. Okay, so, so this is why we're created. And actually, in scripture, the terms image and glory are often interrelated. Humans were created to reflect perfectly God's image. And they do so throughout all of creation. So that's the created order. But the fall, right? So, so in Genesis 3, the fall, the entrance of sin into the world, into the human heart, has marred that image. So that now we, we are still image bearers, but we don't do it perfectly, Right, this, is, this is what Paul means in, in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The image of God is not displayed or reflected as it ought to have been in the life of every person. All have sinned. In this sense, the interest of sin into the world distorts the image or the glory of image bearers. Which is why after the fall, the process or the plan of salvation is, is carried out. Salvation and its outworking in sanctification have in view the restoration of man as the image of God. So that we, so that we, we fully and perfectly reflect the image and that, that's where we're going. That's why we were saved, so that we might be transformed into that image. And so to be sanctified is to be restored into the, into the original image bearers that we were made to be, only even better if that's possible to even think of. So it's like the new heavens and the new earth will be Eden 2.0, where we can't fall again, right? Eden 1.0, we, we messed it up. The Lord has done such a thing that we, we can't mess it up. He's done all that's necessary to ensure that he will be with his people forever. And so sanctification 
is necessary because that's what we were created for. We were created to be image bearers, beholding the glory of the Lord physically in his presence. And so this, this image of creation is why on the one hand, every Christian ought to be adamant about human justice. We must on the social and the cultural level, right? We are called to do so. Christians ought to speak out against racism in all of its forms. In all of its forms. Christians ought to speak out against abuse in all of its forms. Christians ought to speak out in favor of liberty and justice for all. Right? So, so on this social or this cultural level, Christians, because of the doctrine of creation, because all men and all women are created in God's image, we ought to fight for justice for all. And we do so because every single human being, though it is marred, still bears the image of his or her creator. Every person in this world, every person inhabiting this universe right now bears the marks of his or her maker. Which means that every single person has inherent dignity and value. In fact, on the old covenant, do you know why, why, why murder what was deserving of of, of execution, why they say, well, if, if you kill someone, then you deserve to be killed. It's because the image that the person murdered bears, it is an image bearer, and to offend that, to kill that, deserves the, the, the greatest penalty. And so it wasn't to be, to be overly angry, it's because this is an image bearer, and to take the life of an image bearer deserves the maximum penalty. So that, that's the old covenant, that's the image of God being worked out there in Israel. The same is true here, not, 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 not under the old covenant, but every image bearer deserves respect and dignity and ought to have their life preserved. This is biblical anthropology 101. This is, this is how our Christian worldview shapes how we view our world. And this is why, though I don't often agree with, with what's meant by the term, right? so sometimes, most of the time when people say this, um, I, I don't agree with, with what, what they mean, but, but it is accurate in this sense to say that Christianity has greatly influenced the founding of our country. Or to say that we are a Christian nation. Now again, my caveat is I don't, I don't always, most of the time I don't agree with that, but I agree with it in this sense. In the Declaration of Independence, do, do you know one of the most famous lines? We hold these truths to be self-evident, our founders wrote. Here's the truth, that all men are created equal now why, what's, what's the foundation of this equality? That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That language is grounded in the Christian worldview. To say that the creator has created all men equal and has endowed all men with certain rights is to recognize that all men have value and dignity. It comes from God, a government doesn't give those. It's the government and the founding recognizes this is evident. God has created men and women equal and they, as created people, they have rights. And so that, that, that was the founding document of, of or one of them of our nation. And so we recognize that. But we also have to recognize that those founding convictions have not always worked themselves out in our nation very well. I mean, it's been, it's been a history of, of, well, wait a minute, are all men created equal or not? And so consider the Native Americans or consider the slave, consider the African American, consider the female, consider the unborn, consider the disabled. Right? So our nation has struggled 
right? To, to, to work those convictions out practically, though the founding, founding, it's established the way it's worked out is not. The, the United States of America has always been a little bit behind when it comes to the outworking of our founding convictions, but the Christian ought to have no problem getting on board with unalienable rights. This is how the doctrine of creation shapes how we view our world with equality of all image bears. This is a biblical worldview. Okay, so, so that's the first thing. We, 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 ought, we ought to view the world in this way. However, now here's a big however. Justice and equality on the social or cultural level is never enough and never will be. Restoration that only addresses these horizontal relationships can never accomplish what every fallen image bearer most needs. And so the true realization of, of these inalienable rights, the true experience of life, liberty, and happiness can come only, not from social or cultural restoration, but through reconciliation with the creator who made men and women in his own image. God must be the source of accomplishing and living out these inalienable rights. And that only comes through the ministry and work of the gospel. That the gospel is the only way to establish lasting change. The gospel is the only source. And so as Christians, we ought to pursue justice on the horizontal levels, but we, and so we ought not to be afraid to speak up for our fellow image bearers, but we also must not assume that any lasting or real solution can come from anything short of reconciliation with God through Christ. Social and cultural justice is a start, but it must not be the end or final destination. Reconciliation with God the creator must be the end goal for every Christian. And this happens only, as I said, through the proclamation and the advance of the gospel. And this only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit who is given to restore what was lost in the fall. And so our, our, as Christians, our, our, our activity in the world, especially in our current m- moment, must be, must be driven by gospel hope and gospel proclamation. That must be our end goal. The Spirit transforms God's people. The Spirit sanctifies us that we might dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And so that's the first reason why sanctification is non-negotiable. Then secondly, sanctification is non-negotiable because of salvation. And so while this is related to the first, I just want to see, I want you to see how significant sanctification or, or holiness is when it comes to the New Testament in the, the purpose of salvation. So, so listen to Ephesians 1. Paul, at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, writes this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, purpose statement, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Right, so, so majestic sentence, majestic blessings that have come to us through Christ, but Paul says that all of this was done so that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so Paul locates election, God's choosing of us for the explicit purpose of being holy and blameless. Another way of saying this would be to say that God saved you in order to make you like him, in order to make you holy. And so holiness is a necessary aspect of salvation. It's the reason for redemption, and here's a few New Testament passages that, 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 that make this point. So listen, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll read the, the passage and then the, the verses. So you can write them down and then just listen. So 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 and 9. 
Paul writes to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse nine, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And so a, a holy calling. First Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, Right? That earlier, a few verses up in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 16. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead of being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead of doing that, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is ethical. This is, this is practical holiness. Be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, Peter writes, and he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Romans 12, great verse. Paul, near the end of the book of Romans, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? We, we've probably heard sermons on that. Be a living sacrifice, but he describes that living sacrifice as something that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then Ephesians 5, the last passage I'll mention. Ephesians 5, in the, in the middle of Paul giving uh, charges to husbands and wives and saying, here, as Christ loved the church, that's the, that's the pattern that husbands are to follow. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And notice what Christ did and gave himself up for her. Why? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And so the church corporately is, our destination is holiness without blemish that we might be presented to our spouse that's why Christ died for us, to cleanse us. And so it's hard to downplay or to ignore the role of holiness in the life of the Christian. It's non-negotiable. It's, it's wrapped up in our very salvation. One author writes, holiness was the goal of our election and redemption and holiness remains God's basic requirement of us and the goal of all his providential dealings with us. Ephesians 2, thought about Ephesians 2, verse 10. Every Christian is God's workmanship created. Why? Why have we been saved? Why have been, we, we've been saved by grace? We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is practical holiness. And this process of sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness is non-negotiable for the Christian. Not only because it's why we were created, but it's also why we were saved. And so I simply want to, as we close, I just want to close with the two questions that we started off with. Am I growing in Christ-likeness? If I'm a believer, I'm on this road and I'm moving in this direction and I just want us as Christians to introspectively ask, are we growing in Christ-likeness? What are some ways? Write down, journal, take, take inventory. What are ways that you are growing in Christ-likeness? What are ways that you see that you lack Christ-likeness, that you need further growth? If you're like me, there, there are ways, there are glaring issues in your life where, where, where you lack conformity to Christ. And so as we ask this, we don't do so to, to discourage ourselves, but to be reminded that we've been given the spirit to help us to grow in these areas. And so, so identify these areas and, and, and pursue them. And that's gonna be the, the subject of next week. How does this process work? How do we actually grow? And so we'll look at that next week.
But, but we ought to be asking the question, am I growing in Christ-likeness? And the second, how's the doctrine of creation, specifically of all people being created in God's image, how's that shaking how, shaping how I'm thinking about cultural issues? We must be Christian first and foremost, and so I want our Christian identity to shape how we view cultural issues. And yes, we're gonna have, even among Christians, we, sh- we are going to disagree on some of these cultural issues. And I'm not saying that, that we must not disagree. I'm saying that how we disagree must be rooted in our identity as brothers and sisters, as Christians. And how we, how we interact with those who are not Christians certainly must be shaped by and rooted in our identity as Christ followers. And so we have to treat others with respect and dignity. And so my hope, I mean, this is my hope, my prayer for myself and my my prayer for you is that we might rise to the occasion that's before us. That we have have a situation that is unique. We have an opportunity to rise to the occasion before us. And my prayer is that we as God's people might not be dragged down into the division, into the political or the cultural division. I'm praying against that. I don't want us to be dragged down. Instead, I want us to shine I want the church to rise up and shine. I mean, this is the prayer of Paul in Philippians 2.14 where he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And so the way we live our lives before others in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's not, let's not be mistaken. We are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And the way that we live our lives is either going to be, according to Paul, a shining light or a burnt out bulb. And a burnt out bulb makes no difference whatsoever in a dark and, dis- and twisted generation. And Paul, we, we shouldn't forget that Paul seems to think that grumbling or complaining or arguing or disputing fall under the category of burnt out bulbs. Don't miss that. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be a light that shines. And so I want to be someone who holds fast to the word of life, as Paul says in, in Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life. That's how we shine like lights. I wanna be someone who hold, holds fast to the word of life. I wanna be a Bible person. I wanna be a Christ follower. I wanna be a light. I wanna be a voice of compassion and justice. I want to be blameless and innocent without blemish. And I know, I know based on what we see in the work of the spirit, I know that every Christian deep down resonates with that desire because we have the spirit. And so my, my hope is that, that we, by the spirit, are continually transformed, that we keep in step with the spirit, we don't grieve the spirit, but that we are led more and more by the spirit and that we, by in doing so, we hold fast to the word of life and shine like stars, like bright lights. And so the Spirit is at work in transforming us and at renewing us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And so let's, let's pray for that work in our lives. Let's pray for the work in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And let's pray for the opportunities before us. Let's not miss our chance because we have a great opportunity, but more importantly, we have the Spirit who's been given to us for this time and purpose. Well, let's pray as we close.